Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, wanderers and wanderers. It's time to rest your weary feet, sit back and relax, and just absorb this week's list of big ideas with a bit of tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. We're going to give you the latest on what's happening with AI. We'll breathe a bit of fresh air courtesy of Dyson, and we'll see where we're up to in the world of clean, green commercial flight. And here to tell us all about it is the man himself, Matthew Dickerson. What's been happening in your world? Well, a bad incident occurred in my world this week, but I actually saw how technology can help with that. In our area, we had some bushfires, and they weren't terrible bushfires in the way that we've seen over years gone by. Mm. They are enough to bring a bit of worry, though. Absolutely right. And I talked to a few people who live nearby. One person said they got to within about four kilometres of their house. Now, four kilometres might sound like a fair distance, but when you've got Mm. a bushfire travelling along pretty quickly, you can suddenly chew up four kilometres and then your house is under threat. So there were no... Loss of lives, no injuries, no houses that got consumed by these fires, which was fantastic. A lot of that came down to the unbelievable teams we have with the Rural Fire Service and Mm. the various other emergency service operators. Some of it comes down to the wind decides to change direction. So sometimes it can be nature, it can be luck. But I had the opportunity to go out to the control room, the Rural Fire Service control room, And it's interesting in terms of the technology that is there and that's present, and also all the agencies that are working together. So with some of these emergencies, depending on what type of emergency, floods, for example, you might have SES working with rural fire service, working with local... coordination's got to happen there, yeah? Oh, absolutely right. And this was similar to that. We didn't have SES involved, but obviously the local fire brigade and rural fire service and council, so a, a range of operators, police are involved as well. And of course, the first question I asked when I walked in naively and there's a control room and there were a lot of people doing a lot of things. They all looked very Was it active. very tense? It was an anxious sort of a, a place to be or? I didn't actually get that feeling. Yeah, I got right. that feeling that people knew their job. This is what they're trying to do. Exactly right. They were doing their job. They were doing it incredibly efficiently. They were busy, but they were all going about their things. But I did ask the naive question to say, well, you've got lots of different agencies involved here, so... Who's in charge? If if a decision has to be made, sure, you try and get consensus and try and get everyone agreeing that this is the best course of action, but who's in charge? And the guy that had the vest with the 10 centimetre high writing on it that said incident controller, he said, (laughs) the one that wears this vest is the one in charge. (laughs) So obviously there's some fights over who wears the vest. (laughs) But you've got the incident controller, you've got the deputy incident controller in case the incident controller is, I don't know, on the toilet maybe. Yeah, right. So it's very clear in terms of their protocols. But what I enjoyed was looking at the screens. They had several large TVs, I'm talking maybe 85-inch TVs on the wall. A couple of those were touchscreens, but the access to information. And Mm. a lot of people say to me, the best information is for people on the ground, out there in the field. But if I'm on the ground, I can see around me, and probably not very far because there's probably a lot of smoke, looking at what they had available to them in the control room, One of the maps, for example, had about nine different overlays. So I could look at that map from an aerial view and see one particular thing. So I could see what the terrain looked like. Mm. So I could then communicate, if I was the incident controller, which I wasn't, but if I was, I could then communicate to my team on the ground and say, we really want to stop it going north because about two kilometres north of you is really thick bushes or a forest or something. A slope or something, yeah. Exactly. So if it gets into that, it's going to be all sorts of trouble. But I can then see as well, if I go to a different layer, I can see 
where the hotspots are so there's actually aerial imaging for heat. So yeah. I can say, right now, around this area and this area, that's where the heat is. I can then see another map that shows me the wind direction. So I get an idea of where it's headed. And then when they send the large aerial tanker in, the RJ85 is the yeah, main I was going to ask you about that. When do they send that in? Well, as soon as possible, basically. Yeah. And they sent the RJ85 in. But again, when they were showing me where they were sending that in, here's the fire burning, here's the wind blowing, here's the heat, at the main heat source or the main heat of the fire, here's the bush that we want to keep it away from. And so we do a run um, from the large aerial tanker along this spot here, just in front of the fire. They're not trying to put the fire out. That's too difficult to actually put enough retardant on there. Yeah. They're trying to put... Because that's what it is. It's a retardant it's to a retardant. stop the fire from burning on it. Yeah. That's right. So they're trying to put it in front of the fire. Yeah. So as the fire burns in that direction, it gets to the part that's all coated with the retardant and it slows down that burn either to put it out or to allow the ground crews then to get in there more effectively. Mm. Sometimes they're dumping it on houses. So there were some dumps of the retardant they put across some infrastructure, some housing, some buildings there, again, so that when that fire reaches there, it's much less likely to be able to burn. So but interesting. It yeah. was it was actually fascinating sitting back watching it. Obviously, I just want to stay out of everyone's road while they're all <laughs> going about their thing, but just watching what they're doing, moving their fingers on touchscreen to getting the, the wider view, then zeroing in a bit further. And every vehicle you could see on the fire ground. So they could actually see little dots there and different coloured dots depending on what type of vehicle it was. So they could see all those vehicles. And again, from a safety perspective, you see a fire moving, you see some vehicles there, you look where it's going to go, you can get on the radio to those crews and say, hey, there's a fire heading towards you. There's a road that goes out there. Get out there now because that fire is going to consume where you are. So it's great to see technology used there. Again, some people still say on on the ground is the best information, but I think the combination of on the ground, what's mm. happening, how's it looking, with all that experience of those people on the ground, but then add in this technology. Some of it was taken by satellite. Some of it was taken just by some of the planes that you have that are flying above it to actually get a look at it. Apparently, the satellite imagery is expensive, so you start to pay a lot more to get detailed satellite imagery, but you can get that from the planes you can fly above there as well. So, yeah, a whole range of bits and fe- pieces of information feeding into it to then end up with this visual representation. Amazing of the experience. And yeah, with, it was. You know, with 39 degrees uh, of heat and um, was strong winds as well, that mm. Monday was a shocker. And then lightning strikes. Yeah. And then they're also tracking, that was another screen I could look at, it was lightning strikes, wow. tracking where the lightning strikes are. And again, we've talked about it. In fact, I think it was one of our very early episodes that we talked about looking through satellite imagery to look for heat sources for lightning strikes. And again, they look at that and use that sort of information to try and get on those fires as soon as possible after a lightning strike, because obviously if you can get it when it's small, you've got much better chance of putting it out. Anyway, mm. well done to all those incredibly hardworking people that are risking their lives in a lot of circumstances. But just the technology, I was fascinated by that. For sure. All right, folks, we should fire the starter's pistol and get this episode racing. The age of robotics and AI is well and truly here, and the fear is that many of us are potentially going to have our careers on the line. Cue the pitchforks and flaming torches, folks. We're marching on the town square. Now, as the sword of Democles dangles threatening over our heads, we all rationalise with a stiff upper lip and convince ourselves that AI could never do what I do. Well, bow your head and raise a glass to the next of our comrades to fall, the bartenders and baristas of the world. Matt, tell us what the hell is a beverage printer? (laughs) Well, before I start that... This is the next thing that we have to learn how to destroy. (laughs) (laughs) Sound like a true Luddite there. (laughs) 
I want to have a quick discussion with you about the elements. And one of the points of debate is always how many naturally occurring elements there are. So the periodic table, of course, has got 118. Mm-hmm. There's always a little bit of debate. But a bunch of those you can only synthesize in a lab. So Correct. let's drop that back quite a bit. Anyway, that's right. so yeah. Well, that's the first question I have for you. I've got a number in my mind that I would say are the naturally occurring elements. And I'm interested to hear your number to see what you would think the number of naturally occurring elements are. Because there's a range of about 10 plus or minus in terms of what people say are naturally occurring elements. So do you have a number? uranium's number 92. And that's the highest number of naturally occurring elements. But there are some that are below that that need to be synthesized. Things like technetium, 99. So look, I'm going to guess, and I should know this, and I know I should know this, I think it's about... 88, maybe 89 naturally occurring elements. So I was going the cheats way. I was going to 92 just because you get to 92 and the 92nd. After that's transuranic, right? Correct. Exactly right. But there is a bit of debate there around maybe 88, maybe 89 being the number. Some people actually go above 92 because they say some of those synthesized ones may be in some rare circumstance in some area in the universe, maybe that element exists naturally somewhere. But let's say around 90, around that sort of number, 88, 90. So my point here is that we haven't got many different components that make up everything we see. You look around Mm, us, we can see a whole bunch of stuff and, well, I can see more than 90 different things around me. But, of mm. course, we take those... It's all about the building blocks that they're made of. Exactly right. And they then make molecules, they make compounds, and they make everything that's all around us. So start with that basis and then look at drinks that we drink. Most of the drinks that we drink, forget about smoothie-type drinks, but soft drinks, alcoholic drinks, etc. they're mostly water. And then there's some other stuff put in there. Now, if I was a scotch whiskey aficionado, I would say, well, you need to have that scotch in the oak caskets for Uh, 50 years or some amount of time to get the oak to bleed into the scotch and taste all perfect. But when you break it all down, if you analyse that, it would still be made up of just compounds that are made up of elements. So surely you can reverse engineer that. And that's exactly what a beverage... But there's a very long answer to your question of what's a beverage printer. (laughs) So what you've got... just about... Getting all those elements just in the right amount. Correct. And just mixing them into your drink. And that's exactly what the beverage printer does. Kana One is the actual model. It's available for sale right now as we speak. It's only about $900. So for $900, you can have a machine that sits on your bar, in your kitchen, wherever, and you press a button on the touchscreen to say, I would like a scotch whiskey. I would like a soft drink. I'd like a cola-flavoured drink. I would like a lemonade-flavoured drink. And it will then take the water that's already plumbed into it and then mix that with the various components that are required to give you exactly <laughs> the drink that you asked for. So it should print the drinks on demand. I'm just thinking about because because compounds are made from elements and that's fine, but, but some of the chemical reactions to make some of those compounds are a little bit more involved. So I'm just wondering how... This thing works to be able to just magic these compounds from raw elements. Oh, they just magic them. I like that. That's probably, they could use it in their marketing. <laughs> we just magic the compounds. Well, not, no, no, we, we, we had to use that word in a science show. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it does seem a little bit too 
too surreal, too, too simplistic, true to believe. <laughs> it, yeah, it does, doesn't it? A lot of the time is spent with this particular company doing the reverse engineering. So they take popular drinks and they take it in the laboratory and they say, "What is this made up of? How do we arrive at this particular flavor?" And they hope to break it down then to have the raw compounds. I don't think they go quite as far as the raw elements. I don't think they load a little periodic table into the machine <laughs> and say, there well, you go. I'm guessing the bulk of it is going to be carbon, oxygen, hydrogen with some nitrogen in there as well and maybe a bit of phosphorus. And um, Well, they could tell you what's in there, but of course they have to kill you afterwards yeah, because right, I'm sure okay. that's part of their IP. <laughs> but they, they sell canisters. So basically you put it in, you put canisters that you buy off them and you put the canisters in, so like a coffee pod but with a lot more in it, and then you just mix up those drinks. Now, the first thing I thought of was that I'm sure insert any brand name drink here would not like to have their name on the screen because then they're not getting the revenue. So let's use brand names. If I'm Red Bull, for example, mm. I don't want someone to go along and press a button on a machine that says, give me a Red Bull drink because how do I make any money? Yeah. Out of that? I make my money out of selling drinks. I don't want to make it out of that. They're actually licensing various third-party companies oh. so that you can go along and press a button when I looked through it, I didn't find any brands that were the big mainstream brands like a Red Bull, for example, like a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi, but I'm sure that Not will yet. Yeah. Yeah, that will get to that point. If they're getting enough revenue out of that, I'm sure that you'll then pay a little bit for it. But And here's the thing, it's a modern company, okay, therefore it's got to have an environmental message with it. And that's part of what they're talking about. It's not just the convenience of not having a a fridge full of drinks, a bar full of different drinks, because I've got my friend James who comes around once every month and he likes to have a particular Scotch whiskey. Well, gee, I've got to have that drink there for him and all my other friends. So the idea, I thought, first of all, was just to have one thing that had all drinks. But they're also worried about the packaging of our normal drink processing. So when you go into the supermarket and there's a bisquillion different drinks to choose from or you go to the bottle shop, all the packaging, they say, in the world, we throw away 78 million tonnes of plastic just in packaging on drinks. Mm. That's not on the drinks. That's not the production of the glass to put all these drinks in. That's just on packaging alone. Mm. So this company, which sounds very nice of them, is just trying to save the world while they make some money out of selling yeah. their <laughs> beverage printer. But look, I haven't tried it yet. Obviously, I haven't. there's only just out available now. I haven't actually bought one of these yet. But I do like the concept of just take water, mix in the bits you need. If you love that beautiful oak flavour in your Scotch whiskey, we'll put it in there by putting the right elements, the right, right compounds, the right molecules in to get it just right. I'd love to do some blind taste tests with some people to see how accurately they can reproduce a normal drink. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. <laughs> As the war in the Ukraine drags on into its second year, we applaud the Ukrainians for their resilience and resistance against a global Goliath. The Ukrainians have been buoyed by support from around the globe and we can tip our hat to a private Australian company, Cypac, who have played a notable part in supplying the Ukraine with rubber bands and cardboard, folks. Now that may, may sound a little bit whoop-de-doo, but Matt, it's what they can do with the cardboard and the rubber bands that contributes substantially in maintaining the fight. Let's go back to last week when we spoke about some comics and you could order your x-ray glasses yeah. from those comics. <laughs> I also remember some little devices from that same era that were 
foam, maybe polystyrene, styrofoam maybe, and they came with a rubber band mm. and you'd make a little aeroplane, you'd spin the propeller yeah. backwards 50 times, 100 times, whatever it was, and then you'd sit it there and let it go and the propeller would spin on the built-up potential energy of that rubber band and away it would it go. would take off off your um, whatever surface you had there. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when I saw this story about cardboard planes being used in the war between Russia and Ukraine and rubber band were involved, I imagine people out on the war, <laughs> war <laughs> spinning this little propeller and making sure you don't give it to Jimmy who always spun it the wrong way and then the plane went backwards. Give, give it to, to or Billy. Or spun it too much and the rubber band snapped. snapped. Oh, you don't want to have yeah. that. Now, they were about to Go launch to this payload board. out. It's not quite like that. Their cardboard is a little bit better than those little styrofoam planes that I'm talking about and the rubber bands aren't actually used to spin the propeller. You'll be pleased to know. Mm. The rubber bands are used to keep the thing together. So when you actually get this flat pack out there, out in the trenches, literally, you put it together, you put some rubber bands around the various parts to hold them together, and then you launch this. Now, the whole idea here is that a lot of wars come down to a contest of attrition. It's expensive to be in a war. Yeah. And when you've got planes up there that are worth tens of millions, maybe more than that, we've talked about pilots before, all the money that goes into their training, you've got incredible expense. And if you get one of your planes taken out, you think that's not good. That's tens of millions of dollars yeah, that I've just millions lost. millions and millions and millions of bucks. So what they're doing with this is they're saying that these drones are cheap. Now, I couldn't actually find out the price. That's classified information, ah, James. Ah. <laughs> but I did work out just putting a few different numbers together, that they're somewhere between $1,000 and $5,000 each. So they're not that expensive, but imagine launching this little, let's call it $3,000 between mm. one and five, a little $3,000 paper aeroplane off to attack maybe someone that's got millions of dollars of arsenal or yeah. you're having to use millions of dollars of your equipment to try and take down this $3,000 plane. I love the concept of just the simplicity of all of that. So you load it up. You can have a three kilogram payload or a five kilogram payload. There's two different versions of these. And it's actually got some military grade guidance system. You load up the payload, you launch it from your battlefield, off it goes. And obviously, I'm not condoning this, but you're trying to drop a bomb on someone effectively. You're trying to do some harm to someone, yeah, right. but you're doing it through a very cheap method. Was hell. Yeah. If it, it was hell. Thank you. If it is successful in its mission, it will then fly back to you. They've got one at the moment on the Ukrainian side, one that's been used for 60 different missions. They really? And it's made of cardboard and rubber bands. <laughs> they haven't managed to shoot it down. <laughs> <laughs> so it's managed to drop a payload into where it's trying to get to 60 different times and it's brought back. They don't expect it to come back every time. Sometimes they'll launch it and they'll do one mission. Sometimes they'll launch it and it won't even make that mission. But again, you think, oh, well, I've lost $3,000 for that plane plus whatever payload you've got on there. I just think the concept was really clever. Yeah, yeah. This is amazing ingenuity. <laughs> it is. So they're selling at the moment. About 100 of these flat pack drones are being sold to Ukraine each month at the moment. So they're being used. And I imagine most of those 100 are expiring on their mission. I actually thought they might have been a kamikaze plane initially, but no, they're actually, as yeah. said before, used to send out and then come back if possible. So they're being sold. 
that company you mentioned, Cypac, is, is selling them. They haven't actually managed to sell them to any of the Australian armed forces yet, but they're being sold to Ukraine, which well, I think is a good test. Are we involved in any major conflicts right now? That's the next question. Well, we're not, but I thought that if it was successful enough, they might have sold them to some of our armed forces to be ready. Because to be ready to go, we, yeah. We've got lots of other things like submarines that we well, tend to spend money on. If they're made of cardboard and rubber bands, it couldn't take too much to make so. <laughs> Make yourself a fair sort of flotilla of drones. You're probably playing down the importance of flotilla. Is that the right word? The squadron, I think. Squadron might be better, yeah. (laughs) So, again, I love the concept. I I think it sounds fantastic. But it just goes to show you, doesn't it, that technology doesn't always have to be overly engineered and overly complicated. I'm sure they put a lot of engineering effort into these. But sometimes you think of a really simple idea, and you can imagine around the boardroom saying, now, I've got this idea, guys. Let's send some paper (laughs) aeroplanes into war. And everyone laughed at the guy who suggested it. And then... Oh, actually, we're doing it. What a great idea. Yeah. Okay, folks, back to another story about the problem with AI. And this one is guaranteed to make you groan. Just when you thought you were well-armed to pick an imposter scam, the scammers have kicked it up yet another gear. Surely by now you can pick those text messages claiming to be your child borrowing a phone and needing money to be sent immediately. But what if a voice call comes through with a voice that sounds like your child in desperate need? Matt, this is the dirtiest of tricks. When will they give us a break? I was thinking the same thing as you. It's the text messages on steroids, isn't it? Yeah. And you remember... No, you can pick those. Okay, my son's not contacting me to get money. That's right. And so you've got that one covered now. But you remember our 100th episode where I used a free tool yeah. to replicate your voice but and I my voice. But I didn't think about using it in a scam. <laughs> no. Why do the people have such nasty ideas? <laughs> You're right. It wasn't my first thought either. And we concluded on that episode that it wasn't too far off your voice and my voice if we were Americans. Yeah. it was just our voices with an American twang, but it would still sound like our voices. Take that example there. In particular, if you did have an American family, an American child, use something, and that was a free service that I used in that 100th episode. Anyone that hasn't heard it, go back to your 100th and have a listen to it. And so people are doing that now. They're actually making the phone call. They're typing in, oh, mum, I'm in trouble. I've lost my phone. I'm in jail. I've been arrested. Put any emergency in there. But again, if it was the voice of your child, well, I know about those text scams. This obviously isn't one of those. I'm not being tricked by that. This is my son ringing me to say, help me out, please, mum and dad. So dirty. And you think about some of the examples there where you think, well, surely people would finally work it out. Well, 5,100 phone incidents already in the US, $11 million in losses already. And this is only a new scam. So already they've been successful that many times. Again, one of the things that I think we do on this podcast is actually help people know about these things at their infancy so they can be alert to them, can Mm. be awake to them. But I read one story about a mother who received a phone call from her son, same sort of thing, help me, mum, you won't believe what happened, this stupid thing, and I'm in jail, can you just send some money to this lawyer? He should be able to get me out, it'll all be okay. And so she did what her son asked her to do, and a few hours later, her son rang just out of the blue, he might ring once every week or two, hi, mum, how are you going? Oh, thank goodness you're okay. What do you mean? Well, oh, I just got the no money. Just ring you now, mum. Oh no! Can and then the finally, processing in your brain that you've got right. to do. The penny dropped, and to, then she's for the gone. penny drop. The, the, hang yeah. on, I just spoke with you. Yeah, that's right. So it is sad, and these scammers are tugging on the heartstrings yeah. of people. What a terrible way to go about your business. So be aware of these when you get that phone call. 
I suppose it's not the first thing you think of when you hear your child in desperate need, but mm. but on ask them something that only your child would know, something that happened when they were a kid, something that they might know in the house. Oh, just grab that red jumper of yours. Where did you always put that red jumper? Just something that's yeah. peculiar. Even before these things happen, actually have a conversation with your kids to say, now, if you're in a situation What's something that only you would know about? So yeah. just think about those things first of all. I know it sounds just sad. Just generate a safe word maybe, I don't know. Almost, yeah. Look, someone might hear that. Someone might be tuning into phone calls. They might be looking for things beforehand, so they might hear that. But if it's that experience and if they have to describe that experience that only they would know about because only they were there. Meanwhile, the scammer's typing away furiously. You can get a fair bit of information on someone mm. from social media sites and you can learn a lot about them. You can learn birth dates, all sorts of things. So those things are obvious, but some experience from many years ago or some experience in the family, something in the house, things that only you can think that that child would know about, ask them about that. Mm. And if you can't get a quick response to that, oh, mum, what are you, what are you asking me that for now? I'm in, I'm in trouble. I'm in desperate trouble. Just tell me, where was that place we always used to go to holidays just something like that and that extra yeah. 10 seconds might be worthwhile and if it is really your child in desperate need then they're going to answer that question quickly and then you can send them the money that they need but yeah, wow. it, is, it is a bit sad okay folks on our tech talk today we're going to step back in time or maybe not remember floppy disks they were the best way to access games like Load Runner and Ring Quest and Ultima 4. Certainly no one on the planet would still be using floppy disks in, uh, discs in 2023, Matt. Surely not. There's there's a Freudian slip there. <laughs> what is, it? is this where we insert the ad for Viagra? <laughs> well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? And the original floppy disk, I'm talking about the five and a quarter inch floppy disk, was invented way back in 1976. Was that uh, the one you put, put in the Apple, the old Apple? Correct. Uh, and I remember doing my first computer hack, my first little thing that I thought, this is fantastic. They used to be single-sided, those disks. And so the first Apple computers we had at school used the five and a quarter inch. And I worked out that if you cut a little notch on the other side for the read-only or read-write notch that was in one side, you could turn the floppy disk over and insert ah. it, and you could actually get another amount of storage on the other side. I thought I was so clever working <laughs> that out. <laughs> and then finally they got to the stage where they were double-sided, 1.2 megs of data on them. But then blowing the five and a quarter inch out of the water was a three and a half inch inappropriately named floppy disks because they were quite hard plastic on yeah, them. Yeah, that's right. But that jumped the storage from 1.2, from IBM's 1.2, five and a quarter inch. <laughs> I'll show you your 1.2. Sony came out in 983 with the 1.44 meg. Well, yeah, that's now right. we're talking. Blew it out of the water. <laughs> and I can remember some large programs that might have been Office, it might have even been Windows at the time, to install that on a computer would come on maybe 20 floppy yeah, disks. Yeah, you'd get a box of floppy disks. Insert disk one, insert disk two. Disk 17 would always be the one that had the fault on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember employing some people, very young people in our business, and that would be one of their first jobs. Right, we need that computer set up with Office on there. So you're sitting there for the next hour inserting floppy disks. Is this what you thought the computer industry would be like? <laughs> <laughs> but you think now, let's say 983, they came out now, we're a few years past 983, We've got so many different ways to store data and a little bit more than 1.44 megs, surely they're dead and gone. But there is a thriving industry out there. And part of the problem is that 
they haven't been made, unsurprisingly, since 2010. Well, that was going to be my next question. Who's making these things? No one. But no one's making them. <laughs> no We're just one. reusing the old ones. We're, we've still got some warehouses with a stockpile, but some of those warehouses are actually selling a fair few every day. So they have a prediction about a time frame in the near future where they'll run out. Now, probably if you looked in people's drawers and filing cabinets and things around their home or office, you'd find another 10 bisquillion of these floppy disks kicking around. Oh, I know. We threw a whole bunch out just <laughs> two, um, two years ago. Yeah, right. So there are lots out there still. And you think, well, who cares? Why is anyone using them? Well, let me tell you one little thing that might scare you a little bit. There are still approximately 24 747 Boeing 747 jets being used for passenger services in the world. Most of those 24 are using floppy disks. And they're using oh, MS-DOS or something <laughs> like that. Is that right? <laughs> I don't even know what operating system they're using, but they're using that for things, for example, like updates to navigational aids or updates to runways or different airport runways. They're updating those via floppy disks. So someone sitting in the office copying the data to the floppy disk walking out of the office, wow. walking over to the plane, sticking it in the dashboard, is that what you call it on an aeroplane, yeah. sticking it in the flight console of that and uploading the data from the floppy disk. And you think, wow, you've wow. got this machine that's <laughs> flying hundreds of passengers around and it relied on that update from a floppy disk. It's still yet to install Wi-Fi or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they've got Wi-Fi on those planes. <laughs> They're still used in embroidery machines. Uh, you yeah, right. remember some of those. And I, I can remember when you used to get embroidery done for a business, for example, and you'd talk to an embroidery company, they'd say, well, we've got to get your design digitised onto a floppy disk. And so literally they would have this whole array of floppy disks there and business ABC, there's their floppy disk. We put that in the embroidery machine and that'll give them their logo, even in plastic moulding machines. So some of these old machines, that's how they get the data from a computer across to the actual machine itself. Wow. Logically, you'd say, well, surely you're going to update those to some sort of memory card or some sort of wireless connection. But some of these old machines, it's pretty hard taking an old embroidery machine. How do you configure that to go and add some sort of memory stick compatibility? It's fairly expensive. And again, these machines, well, if you're going to do all that, you just throw it out. So it's still a need out there for them. Even converting old 747s, you think of the cost of a 747, mm. but obviously they're getting nearer and nearer to the end of their life. I'm sure it would cost tens of thousands to convert the flight console to be able to handle a memory stick or some other type of connection on there. So floppy disks are still around. If you've got a bunch in a bottom drawer somewhere that are in good condition, yeah, maybe stick them on eBay. You, who knows what you might get for them. I don't know what they're yeah, worth. Very pretty penny. Probably more than you paid for them. That's oh, just... I would absolutely say definitely more than you paid for them. I just and... can't believe I threw out boxes of them <laughs> two years ago. But probably the main thing you had them for, you probably didn't actually buy the floppy disks as floppy disks. You probably bought them when you bought a program that came on floppy disks. So you probably didn't really pay for them separately per se, so you'd definitely be getting more back for them. So keep an eye out for that. There's getting to be a, uh, fewer and fewer in the world. Maybe hold on to them a bit longer until the supply becomes very short, then you might be able to finally <laughs> get them. Okay, gamers, here's one for you. How many of you spend any time at all going through the manual on a new game? You learn by playing, right? Well, if AI can teach us anything, it may just be that taking just a little bit of time out to read the manual is entirely worthwhile. Matt, reading the manual, surely not. This was obviously not written by a male who obviously never needs to read a manual because <laughs> inherently every male knows how to do everything. But in this particular scenario, DeepMind Agent 57 
tried to play a simple little Atari skiing game without reading the manual. It took 80 billion frames to learn the game. Now, that sounds like a lot, but obviously it can do that in a reasonably fast time. Then someone, obviously a female on the team, said, what about if we actually let AI read the manual? Would that make a difference? Of course it wouldn't, because as you say, you learn to play the game by playing the game. So they actually fed a manual that went through all the basics of playing this simple Atari skiing game what the concept was, what the idea of it was, what you're meant to avoid, what you're meant to do to score extra points, etc. So here's the manual. They actually mastered the game 6,000 times faster <laughs> than just playing the game, which I hate to admit it, but it sounds like there might be something in this whole read the manual thing. No, I still won't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and playing games, I mean, this is a simplistic example. Playing games is interesting because the way I would typically learn to play a game is watch someone and then they'd hit a pole or they'd hit something. Oh, what happened there? Oh, you lost points there. You meant to avoid that. And how do you do that? And you're kind of working it out as you're watching and then mm. you start playing and work out things that happen as you keep going. No one, no one ever thought, let's just get the manual out for this or read the instructions on this and, <laughs> and work out where the points are going. That's a or, last resort. It is a last Well, not even that. You know, <laughs> how embarrassing having to admit that you played the game. I'm sure in the AI world, this AI is a bit of a loner. Other mm. AIs don't talk to this loner, this AI loner because it's the one that read the manual. Oh, look at that one over there. Nerd. <laughs> That's right. Imagine reading the manual. <laughs> but I think what, what I like out of this is that forget about playing a game, as we go forward to try and get AI to do other things for us, having a clear set of instructions mm. is obviously really important. And I mean, it sounds a bit nerdish, and okay, it is a bit nerdish. <laughs> I, I, I like my omelettes. When, when I go for a bike ride in the morning, I like to have an omelette after a bike ride, and, and when I'm a bit busy, I get one of my kids to make an omelette, and they've seen me make omelettes lots of times, but I actually they just wrote, don't make them as well, do they? Well, I wrote an instruction manual to actually get them to make the omelette in the right way. It might sound simplistic, but surprisingly enough, the omelette came out exactly the way I liked it because go. I gave them an exact set of instructions on how to do it. And again, as many times as my kids had watched me make an omelette, they could never get it right. It was just <laughs> so many things. They just, no, you're meant to cut it like this, not like that. <laughs> but you put an instruction manual there. So it kind of makes sense to have the basic set of instructions just the way you want them, but we still tend to ignore it. But anyway, I'm going to try that next time. The next new thing I've got to do, I'm going to read. Oh, I probably won't, will I? I, I say I'm going to do it, but <laughs> I probably won't be able to do it. <laughs> for cleaning our carpets, Dyson are now helping to improve air quality. In a Melbourne trial, a horde of school kids have been given special backpacks to wear, and the backpack's job is to monitor the air in the suburbs. Matt, what are the details here? Is that the official name? Is Horde? A, a yeah, group of school a kids? Horde. Is it is a horde? a horde of students. <laughs> here they come! Oh no! And they're wearing backpacks. Well, that makes them a scary horde. <laughs> But hang on, these are normal functioning backpacks, just with a little bit of a, a bit an of extra, extra something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there were some health officials in Melbourne that noticed in some suburbs in Melbourne there were a higher there were higher incidence of kids with asthma, some breathing problems, or not just asthma but other breathing difficulties. And so they thought that surely isn't down to luck. Surely there's something in this. And they did a few little tests of some of the air quality and they thought, well, the air quality is not great there, but let's get some more information. So they've teamed up with Dyson who have added some 
wizardry to some backpacks. They've got magic. Little, magic, that's right. <laughs> they've got a little fan. They've got a little air sensor monitor and a GPS. And then they've given these backpacks to 300 kids at various schools around Melbourne, in and around this area, but also some other areas where they don't have the same level of um, asthma or breathing difficulties. And so then they're mapping the air quality as these kids walk around and then basically putting that all on a map and showing where the areas where the air quality is lowest. And unsurprisingly, they're the areas where you find that kids have got higher reportages of health or asthma. So or they're, not, they're not sending these kids into the stinky air. You know, kids <laughs> go into that smog-filled area there. Just just go for a wander. And That's right. The, the kids, they're now called canaries, these kids. <laughs> no, they're not. They're saying go to school as you normally would. But what they're then doing is they're saying we've identified the areas having all this data now of the areas that have got higher levels of pollution. So now start walking to school in a different direction, in a different route. Oh, so right. still get you there. You might have to walk a little bit further, for example, but that road you go along, which is right beside a busy road, which has really high levels of pollution, instead take this other route, which means you add another 100 metres to the route to school, but it's in cleaner air, and see if that helps your breathing, for example. At the moment, it still is in this data-gathering stage, but it is something that we know we've got low air qualities, lower air qualities in cities. Having said that, we don't have enough analysis as people move around and enough sensors in so many different locations. So you can stick a sensor in one location and five blocks away stick another sensor, but putting sensors in backpacks for them to actually monitor the air as they move around, pretty cool. Mm. And and asthma is something that um, takes uh, a surprising number of lives, young lives, every year. I think it's about 700 or so young people die from asthma. Yeah, I don't know the exact number, but it is, you you do see it, but it also just affects quality of life for people as well. That's right. So a whole range of things there. And Ongoing and long-term illness as well, yeah. That's it, yeah. One of the stats that I find fascinating is that from air quality alone, life expectation for people living in a regional area with clean air as opposed to a congested city with polluted air, there's a 72-day difference, which if you live to be 80 or 90 years of age, 72 days doesn't sound like much, but mm. that's still, in my mind, significant that that air quality can have that big an impact of everything else being equal, obviously, I'm, I'm using lots of estimations there and, and lots of uh, bits of extrapolated data, but that's the health authorities say about 72 days. What might happen is when people see this lower quality air as they move around, that might be enough for them to say, maybe we should take some action on this. Even if you don't believe in climate change, yeah. maybe cleaner air is not such a bad idea. Mm. The job of a repo man is a pretty thankless one, knocking on people's doors with the express purpose of repossessing major assets like boats and trailers and cars after the owners have defaulted on their payments just one too many times. I can't imagine that there's a long lineup to get a spot to do that job. So that's why Ford have decided that it's time that their cars repossess themselves with a bit of self-driving technology. Matt, what's this going to do for sales at Ford? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about repoing. I've seen some shows on TV, yeah, obviously. Yeah, they, they make good television, don't they? They do. They come in. They're normally taking back Ferraris or Lamborghinis, cars that are worth a lot of money, and there's always a bit of action, and you wonder how much of it's all set up and all the rest of it. But I've never thought about how many repos there are. Mm. And then when I saw Ford has a patent to get cars back where their payments are defaulted on, I went... It is a bigger problem than I ever realised. So I did a bit more research and I found figures in the vicinity of, in America, on an average year, 
anywhere from one to two million cars are repossessed. Wow. That seems like a big number to me. <laughs> that seems like an enormous number. <laughs> There's only about, say, 15, 16 million new cars sold in America each year. So one to two million a year. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> like an eighth of the cars that are bought get repossessed. That sounds incredible to ah, me. Ah, the land of capitalism. <laughs> that's right. So it makes sense as to why Ford might want a patent like this. And there's a few steps to it. It's not as if you're five seconds overdue in your payment and then you walk out the front and your car's gone. <laughs> where they go again and the dealer's ring you saying, well, for an extra couple of hundred dollars, you can come get and pick it, it up again. There's a few steps here. If you're behind in your payments, each time you get in the car, it starts giving you some annoying noises. a bit like when you get in and don't put the seatbelt on. It does that for a couple of minutes. So you know every time you get in mm. and you get in with a friend or you get in with anyone else in the car, it's a bit embarrassing that it's beeping away at mm. you and the person says, oh, you need to lend it 20 bucks, mate, to just catch up on that payment. So that's the first step. The second step is it starts to cut back the features. The air conditioning might not work, for example. The oh. radio may not work in there. Yeah, okay. So it just becomes a bit less pleasant to drive your car. The third step is it starts to control where your car can go. It knows where your work is. It knows where your home is. You can drive from home to work because you still need to make money to make the payments. But the pub around the corner or going somewhere on a weekend, sorry, you can't use the car yeah, for that. Right. It's wow. just there for your work <laughs> trips. And then if all that fails and you still haven't paid, then you will walk out one morning and say, I'm sure I parked it there. And then you get your phone out and you look and you'll see a message from your friendly Ford dealer that says, it's sitting in our showroom at the moment. You've got another X number of days to catch up payments or this will be sold. So that's the last step. Now that last step relies on a bit better self-driving than we've got at the moment. Mm. So they're probably not going to do that one yet. But the first steps, yeah, absolutely, that's all within the realms of possibility right now. And so many more cars, I mean, Tesla did it a long time ago, so many more cars are getting that ability to be connected to the outside world and be able to have communication from the outside world. So the next version of Repo Man on some pay TV channel yeah. will just be a car driving itself back at no baseball bats. So it just won't be as exciting, <laughs> will it? That, that, in, that interests me about um, only being able to drive to work and to home and uh, maybe to the shops or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, I wonder if there's something in the American Constitution about <laughs> freedom to drive. Is that like the, the 27th Amendment or something like that? Oh, I don't freedom mention the Freedom to drive wherever you want. You? <laughs> That's it. You've done it now. You've, you've blown it up. <laughs> I guess it was only a matter of time before a bit of ingenuity kicked in here, folks. The UK, in the midst of an energy crisis, is looking for some clever ways to become more efficient in their energy use. Now, in the past, we've talked about the problem with data servers, that there is so much waste energy in the form of heat lost out of big data servers. And heating water for domestic purposes is one of the biggest sappers of energy of the current day. Do you see where we're going with this, folks? Matt... Necessity is the mother of invention, and one UK firm has come the goods with a clever solution to a common problem. And it is clever because I was thinking as I was reading this story and doing the research, and I thought, well, that's great. You've got servers, a bunch of servers in a room, and you've got air conditioning in that room to cool them all to down. Kill them all down yeah. Wow, wouldn't it be great if we could take that heat, and as you said, heat your hot water or heat your homes or do something useful with it? But I don't live in a data centre. I live in my home and the data centre is way over there somewhere. By the time I pipe the hot air from there across to where I am, it, oh, it's all too complicated. It's not going to work. <laughs> so one firm has come up with the idea of, well, let's not have the data centre where the data centre is. Let's distribute the data centre out to people's homes 
and then use the heat from those right. servers to actually heat your hot water directly. So it's a fairly complicated process. I just don't know how well it will go. There's an 80-household trial being done at the moment as we speak. So they put a server in your home somewhere. They pay for electricity to run that server because it would be electricity they'd be using in a data centre anyway. They've got obviously some sort of UPS system there. They pay for the internet connection for that particular device. And then the heat out of that server is used to heat up your hot water. It sounds a bit complicated and clumsy just to be able to save a little bit on that heating. Now, there is an estimation there that they say it might save someone in the UK, after all the other things are taken into account, and they've got some space for that little server, £150 a year on the heating bill for their hot water. So I'm not convinced this one is going to mm, go off because okay. it seems fairly complicated, doesn't it? You do all that, you, you find someone that's willing to do it all, you find somewhere in the house, you put it in, you get the connections, you pay all their bills for them, and then out of all that, you save £150 mm. on a heating bill. Just Maybe there's another way you can do it, piping well, that heat somewhere. So the conversion with, with um, existing houses might be an issue, but maybe maybe new establishments? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe when you build a, a new house in the UK, it'll be make sure you've got your spot for that little mini server farm because that'll be what's used to actually heat your hot water in the house. So that might be a, a much cleverer idea, doing it forward thinking rather than trying to do it retrospectively but mm. uh, keep an eye on this one I'm I'm not convinced we're going to see this take off and in certain countries it would work well obviously colder countries where you're spending a lot more on heating or heating hot water I don't see it working in Australia for example because we just we're a bit too hot over here we yeah. have the opposite problem we want more cooling which is not really helping from a data centre perspective <laughs> anyway it's an idea people are throwing around ideas they're coming up with different ideas they're running trials out of all that sometimes you'll get the right solution quite a bit about flight on this show. It's a mode of transport to which modern energy solutions from ground and sea transport just aren't that easily transferable. But we are a clever species, folks, and it seems that hydrogen fuel cells are taking off in more ways than one, Matt. Oh, dear. We're getting the puns going, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is nice because people will be somewhat familiar with it. The Dash 8 is a plane that's used by airlines all over the world for relatively short flights, one hour, one and a half hour, the type of flight. So many people around the world would have been on a Dash 8, very solid, very reliable aircraft, lots of people have been on them. Great. That's when it's been using normal fuels, not when it's been using hydrogen. And that's where we're up to now at the moment. This is the largest plane that we've seen in terms of this show and certainly that I've been able to find in my research, the largest plane they've had doing any sort of test flights with hydrogen. They've got a 40-seat Dash 8 doing tests with 15-minute flights on hydrogen. So that's pretty exciting. Now, when you talk or you look at the information from this company, Universal Hydrogen is the company in question. They hope to have certifications completed for passenger flights by 2025. Oh, wow, that soon. Very soon because the airline industry is incredibly conservative. Thank you. I'm very hopeful, helpful. Sorry, I'm very happy that it's actually continued that and I'm hopeful that it continues on being very conservative because you kind of want to feel a bit safe when you're up in the air. So for that time frame, a couple of years' time for these flights to be hopefully up in the air flying with hydrogen means that they're making some pretty good progress already. So take all that and won't be that far away, we'll jump on a plane, it might be a Dash 8, it might be some other type of plane, where you'll look out the window and you'll see some hydrogen being 
pumped into that particular plane and you go, wow, this is one of those new fang-dangled planes I heard talked about all those years ago. So it's pretty exciting. And again, we've talked about it before, you need to make sure you produce the hydrogen with some sort of renewable power source, but that's becoming more and more common. But the great thing about it is that you can refuel quickly with hydrogen as opposed to electric. And you haven't got the same density as jet fuel, energy density. You've only got about a quarter of the energy in terms of the same volume as jet fuel, but that's okay for those shorter flights. I still don't see hydrogen being used Sydney to LA, that type mm, of flight, yeah. yet. But we'll get there with the short flights and make a huge difference to the amount of CO2 that the airline industry produces. So it's a good, exciting step. Yeah, and every problem brings its um, solutions, and those solutions lead to further solutions, which, yeah, it's just going to be an exciting future for flight, I think. Absolutely. And with that, folks, it's time for Matt and I to fuel up and fly off into the virtual sunset. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. I'm off to read a manual, or at least pretend I'm going to read a manual. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm off to call my folks and tell them not to believe anything they hear from me ever again over the phone. Mum and Dad, I can't even guarantee that this is me speaking now. Just don't send me any money under any circumstances. I can't believe that I'm saying this ever. I'm James Eddy, and if you believe it, as always... It's been an absolute pleasure bringing you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson today, as it is each week. We look forward to catching you again next time. Until then, take care and don't forget to get your friends in on the Tech Talk game. See you next week.